And we are live, folks. Welcome to episode 3418. I thought this would be a good time to talk about cover crops. For some of you in the country, it's a bit late to go ahead and plant a winter cover crop. Many of you still can. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about how cover cropping is not just for winter time, that there are indeed warm weather cover crops. We can plant some cover crops in some climates coming into spring leading into summer planting. We can intercrop uh, cover crops with active crops. Uh, we'll talk about all of this and more. We'll talk about building soil armor, creating quorum sensing in our soils, why this is so important. Uh, somebody already asked, and we'll cover this, and I may even come back around. Like, is it worth doing in a really small garden? Yeah, it is. And when you hear everything I have to say about this today, uh, you will, you'll see why really quickly. Uh, what we're always doing when we're growing anything is we're trying to create life and life begets life. And so, so many of us, even people that are doing organic practices, no till, et cetera, they're, they're basically getting into a situation where the soil is largely dead. There's no life in the soil in their fallow periods. They think they're resting the ground. But what they're actually doing is arresting life in the ground. We are, we, are, we are retarding life. We are basically screwing things up. We're ensuring that our soil will compact, even with no-till, even with organic. We're ensuring that the biological gels that are in the soil that actually hold everything together to create conglomerates that allow for infiltration go away. We're turning soil that should be very friendly to infiltrating water into hydrophobic soils, even though it's because they lack certain things that would be themselves hydrophobic, like these biological gels that create the aggregates and allow the infiltration. We're reducing our organic matter in our soil, even in no-till and organic things. Like These are all the things that we're going to learn about today. So whether you're going to cover crop this winter or not, this is incredibly important information. If you want to know how to actually build life and fertility into your soil and to eventually kind of get off therapy, you know, we talk about things like indigenous microorganisms and composting and soil amendments and all, and all that stuff's fine for a time. But if we're doing things the right way, our need of input should either drastically be reduced or even mostly go away altogether. You think about like, what is what is the number one thing that people spend money on as the base nutrient to make sure that their crops grow? Whether it be a old lady with a flower bed or a farmer with 40,000 acres. Nitrogen. Nitrogen. What is the most abundant um, atom in our atmosphere? Nitrogen. 78% of the air that you breathe in and out is nitrogen, and you don't use any of it when you breathe in and out, right? So 78% goes in, 78% comes out. We change the oxygen-CO2 ratios, but overall, we're breathing nitrogen. Every living being is breathing nitrogen. There's nitrogen everywhere, and we're buying it, and we're putting it in our soil. Well, what if I told you there are actually bacteria that fix nitrogen, and not all of them have to be attached to a legume? There's free-living nitrogen fixers. It actually just fix nitrogen out of the air into the soil, but yet we pay for it. Why? Because we've created the conditions where we have to. We're going to talk about changing that today. Before we do, let's go ahead and hear from our sponsors of the day. And even though we're talking all ag today, our sponsors today are tech sponsors. 
because technology is important as well. In fact, what we're talking about today is a technology in a way. Cover cropping is a technology. We're talking about more forms of like high electronic technology today, starting out with Start9 Embassy Servers. Hey, how about this? How about you stop letting the government, app manufacturers, phone system carriers like AT&T, et cetera, spy on everything that you do? How about you actually stop storing your data, your pictures, your information in the so-called cloud, which is just somebody else's computer? How about all of that? How about you actually create real encrypted messaging where you can talk to people and no one can break the encryption? It's end to end. And no, I'll put it this way. If you do it right, no one can even see the encrypted version because they can't see it because they can't get inside because you control who even has access to it. How would you like to do all of that? You can do that with a simple little box that you set up in your house. And then you take your smartphone and you use an app to install other apps. And you can do all of this and more. You can run a Bitcoin node. You can run a Lightning node. You can accept your own payments directly, completely and totally oblivious to the systems and the systems oblivious to you. You can do all of this and more with Start9. And now you're thinking, this is Jack speaking nerd again. I hear that all the time. Jack speaking nerd. I am not the technical expert that you guys think I am when it comes to technologies like this. If I can do this, you can do this. It is really that simple. If you can use a smartphone, if you can turn apps on, if you can download apps, if you can do that, if you can send email and upload pictures and send instant messages, you can use the Start9 server. And once you get a little bit of experience and you get good at it, all the people that you know that you want to let into your little community that you create, you can do that. All they have to know is put an app on their phone and use it. That's it. Anyway, next up today, as we're in this mode of taking back our digital sovereignty, how about Above Phone? Above Phone is awesome. It's a way that you can take this to another level completely. Now, your phone itself can be walled off from those providers and those app manufacturers, etc., 100%. If you need to use an app that is part of that ecosystem, you can put it in its own little prison and you can only let it do its thing when you want it to. And you can stop having yourself snoop on. You can take back your technology with above phone, with better phones than you're generally going to get from your providers. It's pretty amazing the phones that you can get at abovephone.com. Huge supporter of the MSB, by the way, $75 off any phone at Above Phone. And I should have mentioned during the Start 9 segment, they give you 9% off. Start 9 gives you 9% off. I wonder if they planned it that way, of anything you buy at Start 9 with MSB discounts as well. So both of these uh, advertisers today are great supporters of the show. With that, I want to get on into this. I want to start out with a little bit of inspiration for you. I want to show you. The cover crop that we put down on the 4th of November, the 3rd of November, the 3rd of November this year, and today is the 12th of December, but this picture that I'm about to show you is about two weeks old at this point. This is my garden. This is a cover crop in my garden. It's the thumbnail for today's episode. If you've seen the thumbnail, you've seen this image, except this one doesn't have the words on it. This is a mix and there are some things in it other than the cover crop mix because there were some plants that will survive into the winter that we just cut back when we did this and we let them grow back. So you can see some fronds kind of sticking up to the left side of the screen if you're looking at the image. That's actually fennel sticking up through there. Uh, there's some shard and some other things that, again, they're winter-friendly crops. We just let grow inside the cover crop. But just, we, you know, and, and I'll, I'll give you all the plants that are in there. There's four that are in there if you haven't, uh, if you weren't here when we did this. 
But it doesn't really matter in the first point I'm going to make. Where is the weed going to uh, colonize my garden through my winter and into my spring before I plant my crop? Where is the weed going to grow in that? And the answer is it's it's not. There's no place for weeds to grow in there. I have Bermuda grass. All that grass that's on the ground, it's like one of the most invasive things on the planet is perennial Bermuda grass. It just runs. and You can even see it if you look kind of to the front uh, of the, the front, the, the right side on your screen of the front bed, you can actually see grass growing up the side of it, trying to invade. And I fly Bermuda grass in my summer uh, because I don't fully completely cover crop in between my crops. Um, it, it, it's manageable, but you know, it's always there. But through my winters, there, even Bermuda grass doesn't get in there. It can't, there's no place for it to grow. It's completely choked out. Now, I will say this, um, I did use student labor when we put that cover crop in. It's a bit thicker than if I had done it all on my own. And those of you who think, I know I'm going to get a piece of land to do seminars and teach and get people to come in and pay to work, you're always going to give something up when you do that, just so you know. And I'm not picking on any of the students that were there that did this. I'm just saying no matter how clear you are, you're going to have some things that go not quite the way if you did it yourself and you or you had help that was – you know, easy to manage because there's like one or two people helping you. When you have 50 people, things get away a little bit, but there's nothing wrong with that cover crop. It's just a little bit thicker than it need be. It'll all be fine. At points, I may actually thin some of it out here and there to let some things get a bit bigger. But it's it's just the case that that is not going to become a weed pit, is it? And it, I actually think it's it's quite pretty. And there are some things in there we can use. So I said I would tell you what's in there. So what's in there is triticale, barley, um, daikon radish, and winter pea. And I'll explain more about that choice later, so I won't go into it now. I just know if it – what is it? What is it? like? And this is what I want you to understand right now. Should you go out and get the exact mix that I used in my garden and put that in your garden or your small market garden or whatever? Maybe it won't hurt anything, but you don't have to. It all depends on what you're trying to accomplish. And we're going to try to empower you today because everybody wants you to give them a cover crop seed mix the way that people ask for like a recipe to bake bread. And those of you that have done it, you know, been with me through any of the cooking shows know that I, unless it's something like bread or a cake or something I don't really make, I abhor recipes. When you get into baking, you're getting into kind of an, an area of chemistry where if you don't get your ratios right, you know, your bread's flat or it explodes or, or what have you. So that, that I get recipes for that and ratios for that. If you're making stew, you should be able to make stew with no recipe. You should what you have available and make a stew out of it. And I want to try to get you into that same mindset with things like cover crops as well today. So let me start out with what is a cover crop versus just a crop? And can a cover crop get a yield? Well, let's start with the, the last part first. You can take a yield from a cover crop, but if you take 100% of yield, you lose most of the value of the cover crop. What we're doing is we're taking soil life and solar energy and a little bit of time and water, and we're putting them together, and we're extracting from that soil certain things, and we're putting into that soil certain things. And if we take all of it away, we've created an outflow of energy that's imbalanced. 
more went out than went in, and then there's no way that we're sustainable, let alone regenerative. So we wouldn't want to take it all. We can take some, and we'll talk about how we might do that in the future. But we do not want to take it all during a cover crop thing. Now, you know, we might put animals on it, and they might graze it and trample it, but then they're pooping it, and they're cycling it back in. So we don't, in that case, we're still not taking it directly away. We want to leave most of it as armor on our soil. We want to leave the roots in the soil. We don't ever want to till ever again. I want you all to try to figure out how to never till anything again. My gardens have never been better than they are. There's a lot to do with compost, a lot to do with cover crop, a lot to do with overall biology and crop choices and some other tweaks. But the number one thing I've done, the beds that you just saw, these beds right here, the last time this bed had its soil significantly disturbed was the day that the dirt was put into the soil. It has never been tilled, not once, not ever, and it never shall be unless somebody does it without my knowledge. And if I find out, I'm going to kick their ass. It's that important to me. I don't want any of the soil life, the hyphae, anything ever disturbed. There is no need to till soil. Nothing tills soil in nature other than maybe a pig and they move on unless they're confined. Uh, a lot of things scratch soil, pull soil. But as soon as they've taken what they want, they move somewhere else in, in, in nature, in the wild. When we take away fences, you don't see animals go in and completely tear up an area. They might tear up a small area if there's something they really like. They're like pigs might tear up something if there's a lot of nuts there. But it's once and they're gone. Yeah, so we don't want to do it at all, and we'll talk about that. But let's, yes, the cover crop versus a crop is the primary purpose of the crop I plant. Even if I leave behind a lot of the what we could call residue, all the part I don't harvest, is to feed me. And the real purpose of a cover crop is to feed the soil. Now, we can take some yield, and we'll, again, we'll talk about that, but that's the biggest difference. I'm planting for the land or I'm planting for the person. At least that's the way that I like to define it. And why do we do this? So I, I want to put this a little bit different of a way to get you to think. So if you talk to beekeepers, they'll tell you at times during the year that they feed their bees. When the flow is low, the pollen's low, et cetera, they'll feed their bees. And if you ask them why, they'll say, do you feed your chickens? Or do you 100% let your chickens live off the land? And most people say they feed their chickens. Or if you, you know your rabbits, even if you're doing you know, bunnies in a bunny tractor and you're moving them around, you're probably still supplementing feed. Because what happens to any living thing if I don't feed it for a long enough period of time? I'd actually like an answer to that in the uh, the live chat if we could get one of you guys that are doing that there. And I am keeping an eye over on Rumble as well, though there's nowhere near as many people there today as there were yesterday. But I am paying attention to you guys in the live chat on Rumble. What happens... If I have a living thing and it goes long enough without eating and, and G. Ma Merkel says it starves. And what happens if something starves long enough? What is the eventual result of starvation of any living organism over time? Come on. I want to move. But uh, I'll give you the answer. It dies. It dies. If I lock you in a room with no food, even if I give you water, Sooner or later, Joe says it croaks. Yeah, you'll die. If I put a dog in a building 
like a cruel bastard long enough with no food, it will get skinny and it will it will starve to death and it will die. So what happens if we stop feeding soil microorganisms long enough? They die. They die. And Potent Ponics, hey, Stephen, glad you're here. says, never use brassicas as a cover crop. I agree. You can tell them why if you want to. There's none of there's no brassicas uh, in my list here for you guys today at all, by the way. I, I completely agree with that. Because And, and the main reason that, that I don't is because they're not microbial dependent. So since they're not microbial dependent, they're not microbial symbiotic in any way, right? And they also release allopathy. Since they, they do not require soil microbes, they have no value to them, so they see them only as a competitor. So I am not big on using brassicas as well. Um, but, I mean, we want to feed the soil. If we don't feed it, it'll die. And most soil biology is dependent upon some living root system being in the soil with it. And if you take it away long enough, it dies. And even if it doesn't die, what happens to a population where not everything dies, but its food is limited? It declines. So if we want a healthy, robust soil food web, then the soil needs food and the creatures that live in the soil need food. And that's what living root systems are. And if you don't do that, you'll never come into balance. And, and, and this is something that a lot of people will notice in their gardens. I bet, Steve, again, Stevens here, one of the most switched on people I know in this world on this stuff. And I bet he'll back this up. You'll see some gardens that are pretty well done, and they come out of the gate really, really slow. And then as the season progresses, they start doing better and better and better and better. Now, if they get into too much heat like we do in the summer, we get into this place where we kind of like everything's miserable. We keep it alive. And then fall hits and it explodes again. But it doesn't start out really strong. Well, the reason for that is you've had so much soil death over the winter, it takes a long time for that life to build up and come back. And as that life builds up and comes back because we haven't killed it all, it starts to do better across time because there's more microbes to work with it. And if you do this right, you can get to the point where, like, I do recommend certain organic soil amendments like Dr. Earth fertilizer, et cetera. But if you do this right, you get to a point where you don't need any of it anymore. Maybe a little bit of compost here and there to keep things going, and you have it anyway because you're making it. But you get off therapy, and that is so vitally important. Remember, what I always teach you about soil fertility is three things. Right. Build it, increase it are my first two. So you get a piece, you know, you get a plot of land you're going to work with. If it's not been managed by somebody that knows what they're doing or it's like native prairie or something like that, it's probably got shit for fertility. So we got to build fertility. And as we build fertility, we want to keep increasing fertility. Well, what's the third plank? And this is the most important thing. Hold if we can't hold fertility, all our building increasing have done is bought us a season, maybe, maybe half a season. If we're lucky, maybe two. But since we're not holding, we have to keep doing the work. So we want to hold. And we can do holding with biology. We can do it with things like uh, biochar. But the number one way we do it is to keep soil in a condition where it's alive, teeming with microbes, and most important, able to infiltrate water. 
go out if you have if you're in farm country. Go find a. I don't care if it's organic. Go find an organic farm, but it's doing conventional organic, and ask the farmer if you can have a clod of soil, and go put it into a strainer. Take another strainer and pour water across it and watch what happens. It'll barely get wet in the center, but most of the dirt will go through the strainer and end up in whatever you catch it in because it can't infiltrate water. It's lost its porosity. It's lost its tilt. It's lost its aggregates. And so that farm, when they get, you know, a spring rain and they get two or three inches of rain in an hour or so, most of that is going to end up not infiltrating. So now a place that shouldn't have to irrigate has to irrigate. But what's worse is it's going to take so much of the soil away with it, and the soil is going to get more and more dead across time. The number one way to prevent that is to put living root in the soil as long as possible throughout the seasons. And it's how nature works. If you go out in nature and you see bare soil, something happened. We call it a disturbance. You, know, you might walk through the woods in the fall and you'll see little bare patches all throughout like a, an oak grove. That's probably deer or turkeys went through there and they're eating acorns. But you go back in a couple weeks and it's all covered up with new leaf fall and what have you. It doesn't stay that way. And what do you find when you see a disturbance that remains disturbed long term? It always looks the same eventually. It's compacted concrete-like soil that nothing wants to grow in because it can't. We have to fix that. We have to put an armor back on it, get life back into it, and get it growing again. But I guarantee you, you find a place in nature with a disturbance that doesn't get covered back up naturally. It always looks the same. The dark color may change, but it always gets lighter than the actual soil in the area looking. And it looks like somebody went through with a with a uh, with a compactor and compacted it, and that's that's in essence what's happened. So, what do we mean by soil armor? It means when I look down, mostly I shouldn't see soil. I should see some sort of organic matter. I see plants, and plants are shading, covering the soil, or I see residue from the last thing that grew and either dropped leaves or was put to death in some way. The soil should not be exposed. Even in very healthy soils, there are some pathogens. And there are certain pathogens that are only pathogenic on a plant's like leaves. They really don't do anything to the roots. Some pathogens can enter through roots. That's why we want diverse biology to help with that. But a lot of stuff that will do no harm to a plant whatsoever in the dirt, when rain falls at about, by the way, raindrops move in about 20 miles an hour when it hits the ground. And it splashes up a little bit of spore onto the plant leaf. And a lot of times, where does that end up? On the underside of the plant leaf, where the stomatas are when they open up. Woo! All of a sudden, we're off to the races, and that pathogen is now able to invade the plant through the leaf system. Well, if that 20-mile-an-hour raindrop hit chaff or some form of mulch or hit a leaf on the way down and then dripped off into the soil... It's not making that little poof now, is it? And if that soil will infiltrate, it's probably damp on the surface, except in the driest conditions, and it's not poofing up either. And it's not washing away. That's what we need by, mean by soil armor. There's something there, whether it's a mulch-like something or a living something. It's covered. 
And again, go look in nature. Go go out and look at a meadow. Again, if you see an open patch of dirt, a pig or something, like some sort of major erosive event occurred that was beyond what the soil could handle, something happened. Go into the deep forest where it's all big trees and there's not a lot of undergrowth anymore because it's all shaded out. What do you see? Leaf litter everywhere. If it's a hardwood system, you're getting a new batch of leaves every year. One time when I was hunting deer in, in Pennsylvania, it was kind of right where you're getting the main leaf and mass drop. Really good time of year to be out there looking for deer. And the leaves were about knee deep when you walked through them. That's how deep the leaf litter was. And as I was getting down from my tree stand, I was wearing a, a head net so to hide my face to help the deer not see me. And when I took the head net off, I saw my glasses just go. And I just watched them pinwheel all the way to the ground. I watched exactly where they hit. And I marked it in my mind that those things hit right there. I spent about 15 minutes digging through leaves, no glasses, and they're still probably laying somewhere in the soil in the Pennsylvania deer woods. That's how thick that leaf litter was. And if you go into the conifer areas, you'll just find this mat of needles anywhere you go in nature. The only place that you really see bare ground is deserts. And most of the bare ground deserts are deserts that we created that weren't deserts originally. Or they were scrub forest desert. They were a desert based on rainfall, but not on appearance. We've made most of the, the deserts in the world one way or another across time. And it's because we allow the soil to exist without a root system, which is not a natural way for it to be. It just isn't. Now, why do we always want to do a multi-species cover crop if we can? And, 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 and there, I'm not going to say always. There are specific use cases, especially when you get into conventional ag, that you may want to, in one rotation, plant a single species cover crop. Though I would always side toward at least two. At least two. Personally, I try to go with three to four different things. And I'll go ahead and give you that now. I always want something that is a legume-based nitrogen fixer, as long as it's going to work at this particular time. I want something that is a fibrous root system that is also going to grow tall and produce a lot of biomass like a cereal grain. Always want that. I always want something with a tap root like daikon or purple top turnip. Uh, always. And I am always going to want, um, again, that's it, nitrogen fixer, a fibrous root system, and a taproot system. I always want at least those three. But the big reason I want multi-species going on is that different microbes are favored by different root systems. And so by having a greater diversity of plants, which, again, back to nature, you almost never see anything that remotely approaches a monoculture in nature. The place that I'm talking about in Pennsylvania where I lost my glasses, if you stood there in the fall, you'd look at it and go, this is a white oak monoculture. That's why I was there. It was a good mast year for white oak. It's usually every other year that white oak drops a large quantity of acorns. They're very, very palatable, low in tannin compared to red oaks. 
And so I just thought it would be a good place. And if you, again, if you stood there in the late fall, once the leaves are dropping, you'd go, this is, this is nature's Jack's wrong. But if you looked around, you'd be like, well, actually that tree over there is a red oak. And that tree over there is a, is a, 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 a Tolupo. And, there's a few other trees. Oh, but it's mostly oak. But if you went in there in the spring, well, there's leeks and there's miner's lettuce and there's there's just all kind. Like you could probably identify 50 species at different points. So we just don't have monocultures in nature. And what happens in our soils is our microbiology moves into something we call quorum sensing. And that's where, like, the individual cells of these microorganisms are actually able to communicate with each other at a level we don't understand. And improve diversity and resiliency in themselves, in the soil life, and the plants thereby. And I'm not going to dig deep into corn sensing today, but in today's show notes, which will go live about a half hour after we finish the live stream, I have a great very simple layman's terms article on quorum sensing. It's it's a fascinating subject into itself. And if I wanted to go full on nerd geek biologist, I could probably do a whole show on nothing but quorum sensing. And maybe someday for the hell of it, I will. But we, we want to gain the quorum sensing in our soil systems among our microbes. And monocultures don't do that. And the reason they don't do that is if, let's say, I plant even a great cover crop, winter pea. Fixes, especially if I inoculate it with the bacteria that work well with neuterpy, shitloads of nitrogen. You pull a winter, a mature winter pea plant up out of the soil and look at the roots, and it's just covered in nitrogen nodules. And there's other soil organisms that are really happy that a winter pea's there. But you're going to end up with a very, not a monoculture, but a very narrow group of soil organisms that like that environment. But if we go something very, very simple and we just do a winter pea and a daikon radish, the number of interrelationships, we haven't doubled them. It's insane when you look at the underlying mathematics of each. If this organism is present and this organism is present, then you'll gain more organisms that will be present because the organisms themselves are producing waste products that other organisms can use. And the two combine to make more than one. Two are more than the sum of their parts in this world. But when you add three or four, then this goes on steroids. And now we're changing structure, depth, and the biochemical reaction. Some of the root systems will be relatively shallow. Some will be deep. Some will be hairnet-like. Some will be taproot-like. We're also changing the biochemical relationships, and each one, again, is a multiplier beyond adding one, trying to keep it really simple. Um, now, can we obtain a yield? And if we're going to do, and, and this is where a lot of people will do a cover crop, and they'll say, well, if I'm going to cut, like, especially when you get into agriculture, right? You get into, uh, like, people that are farming for money. Well, if I put down this multi-species cover crop, then I really can't take a yield. Well, there's a lot of ways we can get a yield. One is, have you priced beef or lamb lately? It's expensive. So if we graze it, we gain a whole new level of biodiversity. And the yield is the, the animal that we grazed on it. Now, that requires specialized knowledge. You need to know when to graze what and what not to graze and when not to graze. Like, But that's one way. But let's just talk about a different way. 
Look at what I planted. I planted two cereal grains, triticale and barley. Now, in an ideal situation, if I wanted a yield off of that, I would have probably planted one or the other. Since I don't really give a damn and I'm not trying to separate the two, um, then I'm not going to worry about that. But let's say I was a farmer, even a small-scale farmer. I got a few acres, and I'm like, I'm going to plant a winter wheat or a spring wheat or whatever, cereal grain. Well, cereal grains get pretty tall. So if I plant a diverse cover crop and everything, all the broad leaves are much lower growing or will be lower growing, lower growing at the time of harvest, then I can go in with my combine and I can simply set it higher and take the top part off my cereal grains and leave everything else. Now I haven't taken everything. I've only taken a very small yield versus the total biomass that I've created, and I've not done jack crap to mess up the root structure there. That would be one way that that could be done, but there's other ways. We can, But as gardeners, which is what I'm really focusing on today, we can selectively harvest. So we're going to talk about basically killing and transitioning, but let's say at the point that I'm ready to do that, my daikons are not done growing yet. Well, I could selectively not kill some of them. Let them get to full size and then harvest those early in my season as some of my first crops. All through the winter, I have these winter peas that are part of my cover crop. I harvest peas and tendrils all the time. I don't harvest great big giant harvests, but like if we're going to have a salad, I might go out and pick some of the pea pods off in late winter because blaze winter pea will go right through all but the most harsh winters that I will ever have here. So I've got that, or I might have like, let's say we're doing tonight, we're doing pork chops and I don't really want a salad per se, but maybe I want a little something to kind of to, to, to be a foil against the richness of the pork. Well, maybe I go out there and I pinch off a bunch of pea tendrils and I toss those with a little bit of olive oil. And I do kind of like, it's a small, almost like a microgreen salad to the side of the pork chops. That, that, that plant doesn't care. That plant grows right back. In fact, a lot of times, a lot of these plants, if you're pinching off, you actually create thicker, heavier growth if we selectively harvest. So there's a lot of ways that you can do it. But again, if you take everything, you've taken all that life force and you've taken it away and you're kind of missing the point of a cover crop. All right. So let's talk about and I don't want to go deep in any of these but I want to give you a little bit of idea of what you can use for your cover crops. So here's some of the good cool season cover crops. And if you're listening to this in your car or something, you don't have to write it down. The show notes have all this stuff listed. Uh, triticale, barley, wheat, and rye. I'm going to put the, all of them together for this discussion. They're all cool season cereal grains. I guess I would add, and there's, there seems to be a lot more options for cool season crops, like I could probably list 50 cool season crops, white kias, oat, any of the cereal grains would, 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 would work with this. What you get out of those is, again, this really tall structure and you get a fibrous hairnet root system and massive root mass. But again, when I say rye here, I'm talking, we'll talk about rye grass. I'm not talking about rye grass. I'm talking about cereal rye. What I like about this is at the garden scale, which is where I'm at today, 
So I'm talking, you know, half acre down and most people don't even have a half acre garden. A half acre garden will wear your ass out. It is very easy to take something like a rice knife or the serrated sickles, the pruning knives that I recommend from Glittering Bazaar, et cetera, out to your garden. And after they've headed out, just grab because it's going to be up above your daikon. It's up above your peas. It's higher than everything else. Grab it into bundles, cut it, dry it. Now, if you want to go through the trouble of a quantity like that, of threshing and all, and trying to make bread or flour out of it, you go ahead. I don't eat bread hardly at all anyway. To me, wheat, et cetera, is way too cheap for me to put that effort into it if I wanted it. No, what I'm going to do with that, I'm going to dry it out. I'm going to leave it right on the heads. I'm going to throw it to my birds, and they know what to do with it. They know what to do with it. Or it's, it can be used as a seed crop in the future, and that way I don't have to buy seed again. That's about all I'm going to take from those personally. And again, we'll talk about killing them. But what, what you also end up with is this incredibly valuable straw mulch that you know is unadulterated because it grew in your ground. You know it wasn't sprayed with Grazon or 2,4-D or who the hell knows what. You know that because you grew it. Next is daikon. I will never go through a winter season where I cover crop and not use daikon. Daikon is one of the most valuable and best cover crops, in my opinion, that you can use. Let's talk about something that very few people seem to realize. Again, infiltration is everything. So, you know, a daikon radish is going to get like the size of my forearm. And it's going to be long. Sometimes they're two foot longer, longer. And if we don't do anything to a daikon radish, it's an annual. It's going to die. And it will survive most winters, not all, but most winters in a large portion of the United States. And it'll go into spring and it'll die. And it will rot. And if you've ever seen like a daikon radish corpse, like the part that's above the ground, it turns into it almost looks like a loofah gourd when a loofah is ready to be used as a sponge, except it's, it crumbles up, it's much smaller. That's what happens in the hole in the ground. And as it's dying, all your soil critters are going to eat it, especially as it's dead, earthworms are going to eat it. And earthworms, like almost as soon, they're like chickens of the soil. Like they eat, they poop, they'll leave castings in the hole, but they're also going to leave a hole. If you go look on agricultural land, and, and somebody early before we even started said that, you know, can you see big ag doing this? Like they'll never, no, big ag is starting to do this because it makes them more money. Now, everybody's against it. The professors that have been teaching agriculture for 50 years don't want to admit they're wrong. The people that sell fertilizer certainly don't want you to not buy their fertilizer. The people that sell herbicides. Are, so, like, there's a whole movement against it. But it's it's be, it's becoming the case that adapt or die is the way of business in ag. And if we didn't have all these farm subsidies, this would have happened a long time ago. Because you'd literally be out of business today without the farm subsidies. Or you can take this approach. But when you go look where they're doing it, what you end up seeing is it looks like somebody went through the field with like a three inch auger on the end of a cordless drill and just drilled holes in the field. What happens when it rains and there's a three inch gaping hole in your garden? 
Does the water run away or does it go down the hole? Well, it goes down the hole. Fills up the hole and eventually the hole heals itself because you got living active soil. It'd be impossible to keep it open. But at the very beginning of the season, when you've sown something like corn, you've got a hole. Now, if you remember years and years ago, I did a, a, a podcast uh, about a gentleman named Yakuba Sakodoa in Africa that was using a, it called the man who stopped the desert was using a form of farming, a traditional African form of farming known as Zai farming, where they literally dig holes like one every meter, these big giant holes, and they fill them up with organic matter. And why do they do that? So that when it rains, the water will infiltrate into the hole. And they actually don't plant in the hole, they plant in between the holes and let them feed out. You can be out there with a pick and shovel digging holes or a post hole digger or an auger, or you can plant a cover crop that will do it for you. Now, when you look at something like daikon, you also have, it will eventually go to flower. It will attract pollinators early in the season when not much else is in flower. It'll put seed pods on. You can probably at garden scale easily save enough seed to never buy it again and build a land race that's adapted to your environment. And the seed, you might talk about yields. The best thing to eat from a daikon radish, in my opinion, are young seed pods. Better than the radish itself. Well, we'll still pull a few radishes every year and do some fermented radish. But now we have that element going on. Winter pea, again, that's my go-to winter nitrogen-fixing legging. And blaze winter pea, there's some other varieties, but the one that I've tested that has survived the coldest winters is blaze winter pea. I've only had one winter. And I've been gardening one way or another in the state of Texas since 1996. This is the first year I put a garden in in Texas. I've only had one year where daikon radish died. And that was two years ago when we had the big freeze. And we, we went almost two weeks, like 10 days without getting into the double digits. Ridiculous, unusual. Blaze Winter P lived through that. It didn't look very happy. It looked kind of unhappy, but as soon as it warmed back up, it just took off again. So it is incredibly, incredibly freeze tolerant. Now, I don't know how long that could go on, but it's incre- It's the most cold, hardy cover crop I've found. It tastes good, and it, the thing about it, anything that's that tough in the cold, it really gets nuked by the heat. There's not a lot of effort that goes into putting it down Nature does it for you, which is preferable if you can do that. Uh, purple top turnip, it does everything that daikon does, except it does it up uh, at, at kind of higher up in the surface. It leaves this bulb behind, etc. Uh, annual ryegrass. This is something you have to be careful with in more northern temperate climates. Annual rye grass can become a perennial self-reseeding nightmare for some producers. In the South, we can put annual rye grass anywhere, and I guarantee you by mid-April, it's all dead. It's all dead. I use it not so much in my garden. I use it kind of in my food forest areas and stuff like that. I will spread it out, and in my winter, especially going into spring, I'll sprout sunflower seeds for my ducks and I'll go to wherever that, that winter ryegrass is doing really, really well. 
and I'll take the bucket and I bang on it and the ducks follow me. It's like the Pied Piper of ducks. Like that, he has the good shit. And I'll take those and I'll throw them in an area. So they have to go hunt for them. And the way a duck's built, their body is kind of flat and sloped. If you ever look at a duck when you buy a duck or you produce a duck yourself and you butcher it, their, their breast is very flat. And when they, they're kind of like little rolling machines. And they'll go into an area. It looks like a tatami mat when they're done. And then the next day, I'll just move to a new place and a new place and a new place. Well, what if you don't have ducks? Then you have to do the duck shop. But ryegrass is very inexpensive. It is a great cover crop. It is good to intermix with all the other things we talked about in the winter. In your garden, if there is a downside, as cheap as it is, I, I don't know anywhere around me anyway where I can go out and buy like a quarter pound or a half pound of annual ryegrass. It's like a 40 pound sack for like 18 bucks. And so that's a lot. And the one thing I've learned in my experience with annual ryegrass, if I buy it this year and I don't seed all of it, if I seed it next season, almost none of it germinates. It doesn't have a lot of life expectancy, even kept like in a five gallon bucket in a cool area with a lid on. It just, it doesn't seem to carry over. So it's something to think about. And again, if you are in a northern climate and it goes into a reseeding mode, it is so aggressive, it can become somewhat of a problem. So be careful with it. I'm also going to tell you, like, I know people have done some really prick things with it. Like one guy really hated his neighbor and he wrote a dirty word. And this is a, you know, we have, you know, grasses that die here in this. They don't really die. They go dormant. They all go brown through our winter. So nobody has to mow their lawn. And this guy wrote a dirty word with ryegrass, winter ryegrass in this dude's lawn. So then when the first winter rains came and it came up, it spelled this bad word. And the guy kept mowing it. It just was green and down to the level and kept growing back. So just know that it is really, but it has a huge root system. And what are we trying to do? Feed soil microbiology. Big root system, lots of soil microbiology. So just be careful how much of it you use. Another one that I like is called Thalassia, P-H-A-C-E-L-I-A. And I, I vacillate on calling this a cool or a warm weather cover crop. It actually tends to flower in March to April in most of the country. It's a nitrogen fixer. And it puts on a massive amount of flowers. It brings in tons of pollinators. And so it's another one that you can look at and you just have to time it for your area. And understand, like, I'm coming at this from a north central Texas viewpoint. I do have quite a bit of experience gardening in Pennsylvania, but we never did this. This was something my grandfather was not aware of is cover cropping. I will tell you, for those of you that say, well, I'm in really, really super cold climates, Gabe Brown is the guy to look up on YouTube, Gabe Brown, G-A-B-E-B-R-O-W-N, Gabe Brown, and look up what he's doing with cover crops. He's in North Dakota. There's not a lot of places that are colder climates than North Dakota. He's down to almost zero inputs. He's doing, you know, cash crops that are more like grains and stuff like that. He's He's doing grazing and he's doing market gardening on a couple thousand acres been doing it for decades. He's one of the most innovative people I know in the world of soil biology and health and getting off the inputs. And I can only say so much about what you do in your super northern climates. Look him up and he has tons of free information that you can learn more about your cold climates. Now let's move into warm season cover crops. Now I want to talk about in this space, um, 
a mindset that a gardener might need to get into. I find most gardeners eventually have more beds than they really need for production. And it may make sense that one or two beds or half a bed out of the year that you put into a cover crop for that that summer season, and maybe you plant a fall crop into it at the end, and you just let that be what it is. If you have four big beds, for instance, every fourth year, you might be doing a, you know, that bed is the one that's in a fall, in, in, a, in a summer cover crop. Because we've talked mostly about the benefits right now of the soil microbial health, and that is the main thing we're trying to acquire here. But it's not the only thing. There's a lot of benefits to cover crops beyond soil biology. And one is the attraction of pollinators and beneficial insects. Well, if you go outside here anyway in February, even on a nice warm day when it's totally warm enough for insects, you, you don't see many insects because the day before it might have been 18 degrees and they don't like that. So your insect activity is much heavier in your spring through your fall than your winter. So while some of the winter stuff will attract beneficials and pollinators, it's just not as big of a deal. In the summer, the fact that if we plant something like buckwheat, we're going to have a massive influx of bees while that buckwheat's in flower. Well, that's beneficial. And we're going to get a lot of pollinating wasps and predatory wasps that, that do both pollination and predation. So just the amount of beneficials and pollinators it'll bring in is probably worth doing it. And again, we can also get some yields that maybe go to our livestock if we don't take them. Though I know a lot of people that like black-eyed peas, red cow pea, et cetera, as a crop that they can take a yield from. So we can do both. So let's talk about kind of my favorites for your warm season. Cow pea and buckwheat are a perfect combination. They work beautifully together. Now, I was listening to a seminar today by Living Web Farms uh, with a couple gentlemen in it. And the one guy really reminded me, if you ever seen the meme, and it's like an old farmer and kind of fat dude and big bib overalls. The one dude kind of looked like him. He says, it ain't much, but it's honest work. That guy looked a lot like him. This dude was wicked ass smart. Wicked ass smart. I'll tell you, one of the things this dude figured out, it's not really directly cover crop related, but cover crops are how he got there. He had a neighbor, had seven acres of land zoned commercial. And he said, hey, I'll rent that land from you if I can farm it. And the guy said, well, it's zoned commercial. And I got to pay like 15 grand in property taxes on it. If you can get it zoned ag, you know, I'll lease it to you cheap. Well, he did it in a couple seasons and was able to get it into agricultural production. Get and the and landowner was able to get it rezoned. The landowner worked out he was saving eight thousand six hundred, almost nine thousand dollars a year in taxes, and said, "Just screw it. If you'll keep farming it, so that I don't have to pay the taxes on it that I've been paying until I sell it anyway, you can just keep farming it for free." So he's basically leasing land and paying for it by it, by doing it right. So that dude, like I said. Dude is, is, is flat out 
wicked smart. And I have that. It's a seminar, a couple day seminar. And Living Web Farms are great people. They videoed it. It's all available for free. You can watch it on YouTube. And, and I'd really encourage you you to do that. But in another part of it, I don't remember if it was him or the other instructor said that they were doing buckwheat as a warm season cover crop on land that they were effectively resting. And he said, when I, when that stuff goes to flower, I just phone up local beekeepers and they come out and put 10 hives to the acre, 10 hives to the acre. And they pay me $30 a, a hive to put their hives there. They pay me to put their hives there, not the other way around. He said, some of y'all that farm corn just got it, just did the math. That's $300 an acre. Do I need to plant corn on that on that, on that that land that year? The answer is no. I can still have a buckwheat yield if you want it. So there's a lot going on when you start thinking that way, and then we move it down to garden scale. But if we take just a basic two-plant combination, in one of our beds for that summer, and we do cowpea and buckwheat. We've got a nitrogen fixer. We've got a fibrous root system. We might want to add some other stuff there, but we also have a massive amount of biomass. And we end up with these cowpea pods that are about, you know, eight inches long that when they're ready to be picked, we just go through and pick those and we put everything else down in the soil. And now we've got a great feed for our animals. We can cut the heads off the buckwheat, and chickens will eat the hell out of buckwheat. It's kind of a pain in the ass to propagate. Now, one of the things you can find with buckwheat is it'll go to seed really fast. It's a quick crop. It'll drop seed and reseed itself. So if you don't want it to become weedy in your garden, you have to manage it. So the difference in a lot of these plants between a weed and a, a beneficial crop is your management. So just understand that. Sunflower is another really great cover crop. And it gets a bad rap. And there are people who just malign it as allopathic. And I have grown literally everything that you can think of companion planted with sunflower. And I have never noticed a problem once. Now, maybe in really shitty soil... There's some allopathic components that will end up not being broken down by soil microbiology and cause a problem. So if you're treating your soil like a growing medium instead of a living ecosystem, maybe. But if you go back and look on my YouTube channel here, back to when I was living in Arlington, you'll see me standing next to 11 foot tall mammoth sunflower in my garden with beans growing up like it's a three sisters garden with corn. And squash planted right underneath it. And everything just happy as it can be. So to me, sunflower, again, we got a massive amount of biomass. We've got a yield. There's no reason we can't take a yield from sunflower heads. All I do with sunflower heads is cut the head off the sunflower, let them dry out, throw them to the birds, and the birds pick them clean. The ones that the songbirds don't get first. The stalks can be put right to the ground, and the, 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 the root system can and should be left in the ground. It's an annual. It's not coming back. It'll rot over your winter. You're going to plant into the ground for a fall crop. 
plant right next to it. It'll it'll follow the fast carbon pathways, whatever you're planting, straight down into the soil. No reason to ever pull it out. And a massive amount of infiltration will occur in your fall and winter rains because that root system is in there forming aggregates. It's just an awesome, awesome cover crop. Millet. Millet is basically your cereal grain for warm weather. Yeah, um, it's incredibly prolific. Birds will eat the crap out of it. It's easy to grow. It's fast. It produces a lot of biomass, big fibrous root system. What it doesn't really do is any kind of big time pollinator attraction or, or anything like that. It does give habitat for beneficial insects. And it's a way of adding diversity. So one of the things you might do, like I said, we don't want to do one. We want to do at least two and more is even better. But we might somewhat plant spaced well out something like a mammoth sunflower or some other variety of sunflower that's just beautiful. Maybe we want to use it for cut flowers, a little bit longer lived than mammoth, more heads on it. But we're going to space them well out in our garden. Our main cover crop now is going to be um, buckwheat and cowpea. But if we add millet, we add more to that biodiversity. We add another feed crop for our birds if we have birds. Or we can save seed to plant again. And we add another straw-like mulch as armor to our soil that we can chop and drop later. So really great. Um, probably the crop that you can most use as a feed crop that makes a good cover crop is sorghum. Somebody asked about that earlier. I wasn't ignoring you. I just already had it. There he's asking again. I'm not sure if it's the same guy, right? Sorghum. Sorghum's a great cover crop. There's also something called Sudan grass, which is a or sorghum Sudan grass, which is a hybrid of the two. Uh, that's less likely to reseed, I guess. I'm not really worried about sorghum reseeding. But sorghum has, like, so if you think back to, like, the Great Depression and we had children that had nutrient deficiencies, they're getting enough calories but not enough nutrient. Doctors used to prescribe a teaspoon of sorghum syrup a day for malnourished children because there's so much nutrient in sorghum sap. So if all we're taking from our sorghum, again, now we've got this huge root system, very similar to the root structure of something like sunflower. But it actually lets more light through than sunflower if we space it out enough. We have a great grain. I did a whole show on if you want to grow a home grain, sorghum is probably the easiest one to process. It feeds a huge part of the world, especially in Africa. But all the rest of it can go back to the ground. And again, the roots can and should stay in the ground. Now we can go into a summer crop that is sorghum with what we think of in the ag space as cash crops underneath it and maybe interplanted with some things like cowpea, which will grow up. The pea vine will grow up the stock. Now, if we do, if we add buckwheat to that, your understory is nothing because it's going to choke everything out. Now, Chuck's saying you only want the sap. I'm not saying that, Chuck. You are. I'm suggesting if we're really using it as a cover crop, we're not going to cut the cane, squeeze the sap, and then take the cane back to the soil. Though that would be preferable to cut the cane, take the sap, and discard or compost the, the, the stalks. I'm saying you're just going to put it all to the ground and let go. Now, if you want to grow sorghum as a food stuff crop and put the residue back, that's fine, but if you want it to truly act like a cover crop, 
we're taking an awful lot of nutrient away from the ecosystem. So we may not want to do that. It depends on what you're trying to accomplish. And personally, I would grow a very tall, large biomass sorghum in this environment. There are a lot of sorghums that are being grown in the traditional ag market now. They grow a lot lower, a lot less biomass, because you get they head out and produce more grain per acre. It's easier to harvest, et cetera. And if I'm running a farm and I'm trying to produce sorghum to sell into the commodity market, which is a great way to barely survive, by the way, selling shit into the commodity market, but it is what it is, then that makes sense from an economic standpoint in that conventional space. If I'm trying to grow organic matter in my soil, I want the biggest freaking plant that's reasonable in my environment, right? Unless I'm trying to combine it with something that I want to allow more vertical space for something else. And I'm not sure what that would be, but that would be accepted. And honestly, in the summer, any annual flowers, you know, uh, marigolds, except tansy, etc. Like all of these are great. You could just basically take one of your garden beds every year and make it a flower garden and just rotate where that is as a form of crop rotation. And again, leave everything behind. And I also want to talk a little bit about interplanting, but I'm going to talk about that at the very end. So we're going to skip that. I want to talk now about, well, what do we do when it's time to plant the next thing and the, the cover crop ain't dead. It's there. It's in the way. It's occupying space that now I want to grow tomatoes or peppers in. Well, number one, we can graze it, especially if we plant something that's designed to be grazed. Again, if you look up Gabe Brown, they graze their cover crop every year, and they actually plant cover crops in different areas that mature at different times, and they already know how many cattle they're going to be grazing that season, and then they rotate the cattle through the cover. And they don't do that everywhere all year. They don't do that everywhere on the place every season. That changes season to season. But if you go through and you graze it, again, the animal has done the mechanical work and the animal has ingested some portion of the plant and redeposited it back onto the land. So if you think about it, like, wouldn't it be great if there was a machine you could plant a big, giant biomass crop, and that machine would go through and, 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 and chop it all up and leave a little stubble on the ground so it's still there and not gone completely until the next crop comes in, and just grind it all up for us and hold it at about 100 degrees Fahrenheit for a day or two, break it down and infuse it with biology and then deposit it back onto the soil from which it came. We have those. They're called ruminants, cows, sheep, etc. Now, for the home gardener, you're probably not going to put a cow in your garden. That's probably a bad idea. I do not want you to do that. I don't want a thousand-pound animal compacting the soil of your garden when you never have to step foot on a garden if you do it right. But what do we have? The number one animal we have that will do a good job of this for us is a chicken. And if we just chicken tractor through the garden at the point in the season we want to make the transition, they'll do, in many instances, most, if not all, the work for us. Now, we, we want to think about frequency of movement. What happens if I put that chicken there 
and I leave that chicken there too long, they're going to do too much disturbance. They're going to become a tiller instead of a plant processor. So I want to move it sufficiently, right, until they take down about two-thirds. Now, grazing, we're going to do one-third takedown. Here, we're going to probably take down two-thirds or more. But it doesn't need to be a bare earth. We don't need it to be a bare earth, and we don't want it bare earth. We can go through and handle our, what's left of it ourselves if any more needs to happen. But they're going to nutrient it. They're going to they're going to eat pests. They're going to eat weed seeds. And I don't do it because I don't keep chickens anymore. But it definitely works, and I have done it. We can roll it. The number one way this is done in the larger ag space is they take a mechanical roller, and you got all your cover crops standing upright, and he just rolls it flat like a mat, like my ducks do to that annual ryegrass every year. And what happens is since that stem gets creased, it slowly dies. And we plant straight into that like it's mulch because it is. And we so advantage the next crop that even if some of the crop that we rolled had a disadvantage, it's still alive, it's so disadvantaged that the primary crop takes over. Real, real simple. Anything, Jay, I'll have a, agricultural roller well guys it's a garden you could probably take a, a, a the flat side of a of a, a garden compactor and just smash it all down would be one way you could probably make a roller out of a five gallon bucket with a lid on it full of water and roll it you could probably go in just with a two by four and your, your partner on the other side of it and smash it all you can figure out how to do this it's not that hard you could walk in your garden. I don't recommend it. But if you're doing this, it's not going to, you're doing it once a season. It's not going to compact much. And you could just walk it all down. So that's one way you can do it. What I, what I tend to do is a chop and drop. Just like we teach in permaculture with food farms. I'll go through with a razor knife or something like that and I'll just cut it down. I've had certain things I've gone through with a, a hedge trimmer. Just go through and cut it, you know, a couple inches off the ground and let it lay down and kind of spread it out. And again, then, 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 uh, then plan into it. It looks like we're having some technical issues on rumble. Nothing I can do about it guys. You need to come over to YouTube if you're on rumble and you're having those. Uh, that's my go-to. Now, the reason that people prefer to roll, you get a lot less regrowth if those plants haven't summer or winter killed for you yet. When you roll versus when you cut. I find, though, that I don't mind it regrowing. I'll just keep cutting it until my pepper plant or tomato plant or bean plants or whatever have taken over for the season. All it is is more material, more living roots, more multi-polyculture uh, going on. Everything's better that way. Yeah. Next, um, another is let the weather do the work. There are a lot of crops that once it gets too cold, we know this, they die. And there's a lot of crops when it gets too warm, they die. I don't worry about pea here at all. I'm not talking about cow pea. They're, they love the heat, right? I'm talking about winter pea, sweet pea, even pea that I would grow for food. I don't worry about it. it you get into our mid-spring and cool weather legumes just give up and die. Uh 
I'll do that for you when I get there. I see that question. We'll come back around to questions again. If you have a question to exactly what One Million Pumpkins did here, question in all caps, and then your question thereafter it, and I will start it for follow-up for Q&A. But, yeah, um, if you let the weather do the work for you, it's the best thing you can do. If you plant cow pea, your first freeze, it's dead. And your first snowfall, it's flat to the ground. You don't have to do anything else. And you can intercede if you're if you're going to plant a winter crop. You can intercede before it's dead. You just plan like you look out what's your first frost date, that type of thing, and you plan out when you want germination, and you can interplant, and you'll be just fine. You can plant if you're doing a more ag-like situation, larger property where you're planting in rows. You can intercede in the space between your rows where those other plants can start coming up before the first plants down. And this, you can do this as a strategy too. If I was going to plant corn, even in a garden, I would plant daikon exactly where I want my corn next season. And then when that daikon dies right in between each daikon in that same straight row that I was planting those daikons, I would plant my corn. And it will it will end up with the roots of that corn going down that shaft created by that daikon. And the, the daikon is not a nitrogen fixer. And many of these plants that are not nitrogen fixers are what we would call nitrogen catch crops. So the legume has the symbiotic relationship. And it it exchanges with the bacteria and it forms a nitrogen nodule. And then the plant dies and then the bacteria gives up the ghost. And then the nitrogen catch crop keeps that nitrogen. And it keeps that nitrogen in the ground so that other plants can use it when it gives up the ghost. And, and daikon's really, really great about that. Plus, it's great at infiltrating, creating those pathways and getting that corn uh, root deep in the ground. And any, like, I would do that with sorghum in a rotation. I would do that with any large, heavy feeder. I would plant right behind uh, daikon again let the weather do the work and combinations of the above if you have something that reliably summer kills but it's not going to die when you need it to and you roll it or you cut it and drop it and it starts to regrow it's not going to do well as that temperature comes above what it likes and the same thing on the other side of the season so we can use combinations thereof now i, I want to talk about something that's gotten to be really a big deal and USDA, NRCS, conventional ag, um, organic ag, all of it, no-till. And you can go out and you can look at no-till operations. They have not tilled the ground in 20 years, but they're not cover cropping. They're not building soil diversity. And that soil looks as bad as soil off a of conventional till operation. It's compacted. It doesn't form aggregates, et cetera. Why? Why? I was hoping somebody would answer it. I don't know how long the delay is here. But why does it look just as bad in the absence of a cover crop, even though it's no-till? Why is it compacted? Why is it dead? Why isn't it hurt? Because it spends too long of a period I'm not going to, builder of castles, I am not going to talk about Bitcoin today. This is not, there it is, Grandma Merkel got it. 
and Builder got the, the question too, but I'm not talking about Bitcoin today. We're talking about cover crops. Um, because you're not feeding it. You're letting the soil organisms die for a significant portion of the year. And most of those operations are also monoculturing when they're growing. So they're planting, let's say, they're doing organic, but they're an organic cotton farm. They plant cotton, they don't till, and they plant cotton again. And they don't till, and they plant cotton again. And they don't till, and they plant cotton again. And you're using heavy mechanized machinery, and you're not using anything at all to imbue life in the soil. You're getting some form of weed activity. And then they're probably going in and they're using either an herbicide or an organic herbicide to knock that down because we're not using the cover crops for weed control. And we end up with just as much erosion and failed infiltration. And this is something that's really important to understand. We do not really have a runoff problem in the United States. So as many times you've heard me point out that we export more topsoil than anything else in this country by tonnage in the wind and water that ends up in our rivers, lakes, and oceans. You might think I've just had an aneurysm. And when I say we don't have a runoff problem, but we don't. The runoff is a symptom of the problem. The problem is a failure of the soil to infiltrate rainfall. If you go out in the middle of a farm field, you have a two-inch rainfall event. What you're going to see is water moving across, and where it doesn't move, it's going to pool, and that water can sit there like a pond for days before it evaporates. Sometimes it'll almost no infiltration will occur. And the place where the water pooled, all the plants die, and again, it looks like concrete, flat, paler color than the surrounding soil, cracks, and it was a, it was a sitting pool of water a week ago because the water didn't infiltrate. Same rainfall event. You go out in native prairie, a meadow, a forest, and you walk through it and you don't even get mud on your boots. Water went in the soil, so the runoff did not occur. If the water goes into the soil and is infiltrated into the soil, where's the runoff going to come from? It isn't. And you can look at places where they have these watersheds and they have these repairing areas, these buffer zones, and they say, you know, 30 foot from the water's edge, there can be no cropping. It's better, but better than, I, I just had this conversation with my grandson over something totally different. Better doesn't always mean good. Better often just means less bad. No place in the world is that more true than in politics. You know, he's starting to grow up and he'll ask me questions like, do you like this politician or this politician? I heard it on TV. And I'll go, well, if I had to pick, I'll pick this one, but I don't like either one of them. Better is not always good. So those buffer zones are better, but lacking infiltration. What will happen is all the runoff from the surrounding areas will make it to the buffer zone that has no problem infiltrating the rainfall that lands on it. But what's the catchment coming through it? And how many little tributaries and creeks are there that don't have the buffer zone that run right through the buffer zone as water in a creek that runs at a high volume when it's raining? And you have this beautiful lake. Most of the year it's blue. You get a rain event, it looks like chocolate milk, but it's got buffer zones all around it. 
You got ag land all the way outside the buffer zones and no infiltration. If that land infiltrated that water, that topsoil wouldn't end up in that body of water. It's that simple. And that's why just no-till is not the solution for the farm or your garden. We need living roots in the soil as long as possible throughout the season. Yeah? Now, let's talk a little bit of what I call active cropping cover cropping. I don't have a better term for it. Interplanted cover crop. What I mean by that is I will often plant things that are more cover crop related in the empty spaces between my primary crop plants. So let's say I'm doing like some of my big things that I grow for us. Tomatoes, peppers, eggplants, python snake bean, etc. Right. But there's a lot of space in between them. So I'll often plant things that can act as cover crops in between them. Sometimes those are just flowers, mounding flowers, or low-growing prostrate flowers. Sweet alyssum would be, you can use that as a cover crop. It's going to bring in beneficial pollinators, et cetera. And it really, it's a shallow-rooted, so it's great in irrigated systems. But it's not going to be deep down competing with that pepper plant. It's going to bring in tons of little wasps and things like that. It's going to cover the ground in addition to the mulch that's there is an armor. It's an annual. It's going to die. But I know people I've seen do this with like Dutch white clover. It's a perennial. Now, be careful because you you better really mean it before you do it. But once you've done it, you've done it. Right. But I've seen people with just like clover mixes in, in gardens or grow beds all the time. And all they do when they're going to plant is they take and they cut down a little area around so it's really low in that area, and they cut a plug out, and then they plant into that, and they have a living mulch. Now, my issue with that is it makes a true polyculture environment, the type of thing we're talking about today, a little bit more difficult. We've got a good mix of clovers, and we can interplant some tall-growing things in the winter, like winter wheat, some sort of cereal grain, et cetera. Well, we still have that. Not my approach, but it's something that you might consider doing. But we can always think about the space in between the rows. What could we grow in there? If we were growing something in a row crop environment, in a winter crop environment, there's no reason that in between the rows we can't plant daikon radish, for instance. And then the next rotation where we grew this time, those rows end up in some form of cover crop. And the, the money crop, per se, ends up in the rows that were daikon. There's, there's people out there, they are using conventional seeding equipment on large scale to do this. And most people, I think, are familiar with what we call like a, 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 a disc seed planter. So you have a disc, and that disc will be like for beets or for wheat or whatever. And you'll see this tractor pulling this incredibly wide, maybe 18 foot wide thing. And they're, they have, you know, they're doing wheat. So it's wheat, 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 wheat discs. And it has a spacing. And as that tractor moves forward and that disc comes around, boom, it drops every, let's say 12 inches of seed and drills it in the ground, drills it in the ground, drills it in the ground. Well, thinking the farmers that are doing this have figured out that that might, maybe that first disc is daikon and the second disc is a beet and the third disc is wheat. And the fourth disc is something else, and then it repeats itself. 
and they can literally harvest then the parts that they want to harvest. Like let's say grow something tall and harvest the wheat, but leave everything else to go back to the ground or maybe graze it. And then we have a polycultured but organized system. We can emulate that in a garden if we want to. Just don't don't be intimidated out of trying things. Because if, if something doesn't work in your garden, take one bed and try a thing. And if it doesn't work out, well, don't do that again. You only you only gave up the production you would have had from that one bed anyway when you take that approach. There's some other things we can do. We can interplant things that we know will die. I don't even call it a cover crop, but when I think about the way I use it, it's absolutely a cover crop. And I grow it every year. Nasturtiums. Now, if you live in New Hampshire, you're going to start your nasturtiums way later than me, and they're going to grow until the first frost, which is probably like August 15th in New Hampshire. I'm just kidding, right? It's walking you guys up there because it's so cold. You guys are freezing your ass off right now, and I can walk outside my T-shirt right now, and it's beautiful out. Um, when we, uh, we plant our stuff in the spring, one of the plants that I put in everywhere there's empty space, I pop in nasturtium seeds. And it grows like crazy, and it almost looks like it's going to outcompete some of the, the money crop, if you want to call it that. But as soon as the first heat hits, the leaves start to yellow, and I just start kind of pushing it down and giving up the ghost. But until then, I get those amazing, I get huge nasturtium leaves. And I'll make kind of like a spring roll type thing with them, and the flowers we'll use in salads and stuff like that. Well, that's bringing in pollinators, beneficials, et cetera, but it's going to reliably summer kill interplanted with everything else. And then by then, all that wasted space, because you put a, a pepper plant in and it, it's smaller than a coffee cup. You put a tomato plant in, same size. Uh, you put in all, all these little plants and it takes, you know, four, six weeks for that plant to really get substantial. Well, by the time it's ready to get substantial, those nasturtiums have given up the ghost. So there's a lot of ways you can interplant. So hopefully that gives you some ideas because this episode was not done that you would be like a course for this. So you know everything. What I wanted to do is expose you to the concepts and the ideas so you could figure out what you want to do and what works for you. But the basic rules, always keep an armor on the soil. Always keep living roots in the soil if you can. If it gets too cold to do it, it gets too cold to do it. But then that's when you want the armor on the soil and the organic matter in the soil that's decomposing and feeding life until the next thing can grow. Emulate nature. Don't do one thing. Do multiple things. Three or more is what I consider best. But I'll do two when it makes sense. Again, I have no problem with somebody says, I'm going to take this bed this summer and I'm going to do buckwheat and cow pea in it getting it ready for a fall cash crop or a fall food crop. Okay, fine. No problem. But why not go ahead and seed something like sunflower or sorghum or corn in with that? Why not? Why not add that, that multiplying layer of root diversity, microbial diversity? You've got something that grows really tall. It doesn't really compete with everything else. And it's not going to be sufficient to shade it out where the other stuff doesn't grow. And buckwheat being a short crop is going to die off, be taken over by the cowpea. Now you've got the cowpea climbing up the stalks. Like, just be creative and be fearless. Anyway, with that wrapped up, let's go ahead and take a few of your questions. Uh, Kumi Ori Farm says, how to adjust cover crop strategy in northern climates for first process in September? I've been adding a layer of leaf mulch and tarping in lieu of cover crops. 
That is definitely a strategy. If you and and I've talked about doing that and I don't have a problem with it. It's just if you wanted the gold standard, you're back to the silver standard now. And the silver standard is a hell of a lot better than the bronze standard or no standard. Right. Um, However. Frost doesn't equal dead. Frost doesn't equal dead. I'm not sure how cold you have to get to kill annual ryegrass, but it's pretty damn cold. I've never seen it killed in this climate. I know that they're growing wheat through winter in a lot of incredibly northern climates, right? Daikon is tough. Winter pea is tough. And again, I would encourage you to look at the work that Gabe Brown, G-A-B-E-B-R-O-W-N, Gabe Brown. That's got to look up some of his talks on YouTube because if he can do what he's doing in South Dakota, I don't know where you can. Maybe zone two up above the Arctic Circle or something like that. And my advice to you is don't live there. And if you live in that cold of a climate, you're damn well, daggone carnivore anyway. You kind of, Bill Mollison even said that. He said, when you get into a cold enough climate, you move into being a carnivore. That, that's what you're able to produce for food. Salvino said, I'm excited to have this tiny garden in a tiny yard. I've been wondering if it's worth trying to cover crop. I currently just mulch in the fall. You certainly can, but the smaller your garden, the easier this is. And the faster you can build soil fertility. The reason gardeners, even when we don't do everything right, we build soil that any farmer would just go nuts to have by the acre. is because we manage by square foot. The intensive management that we can do at the garden scale is incredible. Just adding lots of organic matter and mulch over time is going to build up an incredible, incredible reserve. And then if we're smart, we don't step on it. I build my garden beds four foot wide because I can reach the center from both sides. There's no reason for me to ever step foot on my garden. My dog doesn't walk on my garden because they're on raised beds. Nothing walks on my garden. Nobody drives a car on my garden. I'll kill you if you drive on top of my garden with a car because you've already messed up bad. Two foot tall raised bed. You drive on that. But if I had a garden in the ground, I caught somebody driving on it. They probably get buried with a backhoe. So we have incredible opportunity to build fertility. Just chop and drop organics will build fertility in a garden. So when we start doing things like cover cropping a garden and then think about the expense, what's your expense? It's a hand. If you got, you know, four by four or one four by eight bed or something like that, or a couple four by eight beds. I'm going to tell you, I got a bunch of seed sources listed in the notes for you guys today. Um, and I'm going to go through them here right at the very end and let you know a little bit about some of them and, and what they can do for you. But I bet you most of you have a, a, like a feed store or something around you. And like we have a place um, called Russell Feeds and they have some, it looks like maybe they got it from a, a library or something, but they have one in all of them. So I don't know if it's maybe built for this purpose, but it looks like a card catalog from old. If you're old enough, if you're, if you're like my age or older and you remember the Dewey decimal system, it looks like a card catalog. And he just says different seed and you could go down there and they sell seed by the little scoop. They have an A, B, C and D scoop and you have a little envelope and you put it in there yourself and write on the envelope what it is to get the counter and pay for it. five bucks. And you could have an incredibly diverse uh, cover crop with most of the types of things that I'm talking about. So it's really, really easy to do. And it's very inexpensive. And let's say that you did it 
and eventually it got cold enough that everything died. We'll roll it flat and throw a tarp over it. You've done the same thing, but you've you've now bridged more of the gap, right? So if you're in a cold enough climate that even something like I don't know a wheat or something, and, and again triticale is incredibly cold hardy, but even if it did die, but you got an extra two months of living root, you know that's what twelve percent of the year, right? Fifteen percent of the year, something like that. We had 10 months a year, this would be easy. It'd be 20%, right? We got 12, so it's somewhere south of 20%. Well, that's a huge boost. Plus, you've got all the biomass that accumulated, and it costs you almost nothing. And if you end up tarpening it, you're doing the same thing. And go ahead and throw your leaves on there when you do that. You see what I mean? Builder of Castles says, do we bring the lamps to the cover crop or the cover crop to the lamps? Let me ask you this. Which one won't take away from the ecosystem that you're trying to develop? And which one is less work? Ain't it less work to go, come on, lambs, let's go. Move on out here. There you go. Eat it, boys. If we take it to them, then if we want the manure, we got to move the manure. We got to move the material here, and then we got to move the waste material back. Where if we let them in there to eat it, not only do they eat it, what they don't eat, they trample and they, they put into the soil. And we can go in and plant behind them. So if you have the option, I would always graze where the plant grew. Builder also says for birds, is seed wheat rye with the husk on or husk off better? Do we know? We don't need to worry about it. They know what to do. They will handle it. You can't do it. They can. To me, human beings should not be eating wheat or rye or barley or any of that shit. It's not food for humans. Go try to eat it, and you'll see. Watch what birds do with it, and you'll see. That, that's my opinion there. Uh, One Million Pumpkin says, please spell the winter pea variety and source. So it's called Blaze Winter Pea, and there's other varieties of winter pea, and all of them are good. The one that I found the, that works the best or is the most frost freeze tolerant is called Blaze, B-L-A-Z-E. And I'm going to let you guys, oh, some more questions here. John says, do you prefer cover cropping over tarping like you've talked about, or can we combine the two? I kind of just answered that. We can certainly combine the two. I prefer cover cropping, but it, I would tarp with mulch. Before I did nothing because I'm still feed. I'm not feeding with roots and exudates, but I'm still feeding with organic matter and I'm going to still maintain my soil tilt. So that would be, again, that's kind of my silver standard. My gold standard is cover cropping and my platinum standard is well developed cover cropping technique along with uh, composting and good composting is a form of indigenous microorganisms. That will be your platinum standard, right? Um, Chris has a question, too. Do you have any opinion on mustard greens as a cover crop? I don't want to use mustard greens as a cover crop. If you go back and listen to the beginning of the show, you'll hear why. I don't really recommend mustards, though they're not necessarily terrible in and of themselves. But your brassicas... Um, 
have basically inherent allopathic biocides that have a detrimental effect on some soil life. So I'm not huge on using them as a cover crop, and I'm not huge on growing a lot of them either. Spotty places here and there for a little bit of mustard or what have you, or a dedicated space for them, understanding that. Life Starts Now says, I just bought a house with 15 acres of pasture in a pond in Tennessee, planning on getting a flock of ducks. What should I plant for them? You should probably go look up other episodes of the Survival Podcast on, like, do growing uh, or planting for poultry in our search box. But they'll pretty much eat anything that you will. But you know the number one thing that ducks like? Grass and forbs. Treat them like little cows. My ducks, every morning when they come out, I make my granddaughter feed them feed. We pretty much feed them so that they don't, they don't have any uh, reduction in production or body mass because they're not getting enough feed. But the first thing they do when you let them out is go to a patch of grass that they didn't graze the day before and start grazing it. And I, I barely cut the grass here. I cut the grass about four times a year on three acres because the, the, the ducks feed on the grass that much. So grass, clover, plantain in pasture. That's really, we're not really talking, we're talking about gardens today, not pasture, but that's what I would do uh, there if it was me is work on developing good pasture. And you'll find with ducks, if you move them around, you might want to check out duckchronicles.com for my whole playlist on raising ducks. If you move ducks around long enough, you'll get good perennial pastures. You want a good pasture, graze it. And, you know, with the amount of land you have, you, you, you got to decide for yourself whether ruminants are in your world, but you will never develop 15 acres of pasture to its full potential with an animal like a duck alone. Now you start doing some then like lambs or a couple head of cattle and you're doing, you put the ducks behind the cattle. So the cattle move through and the area the cattle were in, let's say five, six days later, the ducks are coming through. That's beautiful. But you know, it is not a small thing to take care of ruminants. So I would tell you whatever you're going to do on that scale, figure out the infrastructure you need, get the infrastructure in place, and then bring the animals. Because what everybody does is, well, I'll get the animals and I'll figure out the and they end up hating their lives. And some people might say goats, and I think the only thing goats are good on is a taco, right? Because if you don't control goats instead of on a taco, you end up with goats on a Porsche. Ask John Willis, who makes these awesome shirts about goats on a Porsche. And what happened to the goats that got on top of the Porsche? I'm just going to give you a clue. They're not there anymore. They might have became tacos. I'm not sure, but I know they're not there anymore. Anyway, with that wrapped up, let's go ahead and remind you guys, if you like the show and the work that we do, you can always help support us by doing your online shopping, starting at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. Today's item of the day is the Laura Carbon Steel Season Skillets. To me, these are one of the best pieces of cookware for anybody's kitchen. I like cast iron, but I like carbon steel better. Cast iron is really great at holding heat. Uh, carbon steel is really great at getting hot fast. So it's way more efficient for searing and things like that. If I'm going to sear a steak and I have a cast iron skillet and a carbon steel skillet, I'm going to reach for the carbon steel one every time. 
It's going to get hotter faster. It's going to give me a better overall sear. You want a great sear on your steak, here's what you do. Take some tallow, melt it, just a little bit of it. Take a, a brush, and before you put that steak in the pan, brush both sides of that steak with tallow. Let it cool down and form a glaze, and then throw that in the pan. And the sear you get will blow you away. Uh, but I love the carbon steel uh, skillets from, from Lodge. Um, check it out. It is just awesome. And the 10, 12, and 15-inch pans are all on sale for about 20% off today, which is why I brought them around. If you got a foodie in your life, what a great gift, too, for uh, a foodie for Christmas. And, again, if you get to the survivalpodcast.com and start scrolling down, you'll see Santa Val. You wonder who Val is if you're new to the show. Up in the right-hand corner of your screen, if you're watching the video, is a logo, and that is my logo, and we call him Val. And the reason we call him Val is because Survive Val, V-A-L and Survival. So Survival Podcast Val logo. You'll see a Val logo with a hat on, and that has some of the items I recommend for your Christmas shopping this year, and the top 10 best-selling items of the year are in that post as well. With that, let's go ahead and wrap up. I thank you all for being with me today. I'll announce to you this will be the last live stream of the week because I'm going down to watch my niece uh, graduate from college. Uh, I'm very proud of her and she's college station, which is like three hours away. So when they ask me if I go, I'm a good uncle and godfather, by the way, that's my goddaughter. I'm not going to say no to that. So I'll be out for a couple days and uh, Friday will be a Friday flashback. We'll be back to regular scheduled programming next week as we head into Christmas guys. It's come really fast, hasn't it? And so Definitely consider uh, getting over to the website today and checking out all the resources I've put. Just real quick here at the end, I'm going to tell you some of the places to get seed. Like I said, and I was talking to Nick Ferguson as I was putting this episode together by instant message, and he said, I always tell my clients, go to the feed store. It's local. You'll, you'll find all kinds of stuff. And you get information there, too. Don't think that everything that comes out of that space is bad because it's big ag or whatever. Like, whether or not the farmers in the local area are cover cropping the way that they should be or cover cropping at all. They know what grows in your area. So if you go to your feed store, especially like in the early fall and say, what can I plant as a cover crop? They'll probably have some recommendations of what larger producers are using to do that. Cause some of them are. And so they'll have the things that work well in your area. But if you want to get stuff online, a couple places you can get three places that are really great for some things that are hard to find elsewhere. The three H's, and this is why I couldn't remember one today. I started talking to Nick. Harris, Hearn, and Hancock. All, there are three different ones. Harris Seed, Hearn Seed, H-E-A-R-N, and Hancock Seed. All have some really great stuff, and all have like things like tillage radish, which are the really super-duper daikons as far as penetrating the soil. Uh, Peaceful Valley at GoreHoeOrganic.com has some really good cover crop options. Hudson Valley has some great seed options. Uh, Roar Seeds, R-O-H-R-E-R Seeds, really great. A place that has some stuff that you wouldn't normally think of as cover crop, like, but you can get it in bulk instead of little bitty seed packs like Nasertium and some of your other flowering things is uh, Eden Brothers. And Eden Brothers does a 20% discount for you MSB members. And High Mowing also has a good selection of cover crop options also does a discount for MSB members. You don't have to write that down. You don't have to rewind and try to figure it all out. Just go to the show notes for today's show, and you'll find all of that listed with links for you. 
including resources like the seminar that I mentioned. You'll find that under the resources versus the seed suppliers and the article on quorum sensing. And if you start digging into quorum sensing, you'll understand why I've started to take this direction with what I'm teaching. The more you learn about soil biology, the more you realize how wrong we've been doing things. Even those of us who have been doing it way better than everybody else. Even the top 10% of beyond organic producers in the country, probably only 10% of the 10% or about 1% of the total, are doing things really the way that nature intended. And we're all learning as we go. I know that I've learned so much over 15 years of doing this show. And there are things that I taught 15 years ago that I have to be willing to humble myself and say, yeah, I got that wrong. And I'm learning new things every day. And I'll keep bringing them to you. I never secret away knowledge or anything like that. I don't believe in that. And I'll just tell you that to learn, especially in a place that you're already educated, you have to be wrong or you can't learn. And that's something that we humans in general have a hard time with. And the more we're vested either in expense or reputation of those things, the harder it is for us to say, I'm sorry, but I got this wrong. But then we've reached a point where we can no longer learn. And this is why children seem like they're so much better at learning than adults. And people talk about synapses forming and shit. No, bullshit. It's this. The kid has no vested interest in trying to cling to the existing idea. And the older we get, the more existing ideas we have and the more we cling. Tell somebody that the boiling frog analogy is a myth and they'll lose their shit if they don't already know it. No, it's not. Yes, it is. Mythbusters even busted the myth. You put a frog in water, you start turning the temperature up. Frog tries to get out. He doesn't sit there and boil to death peacefully. As soon as the water gets this much uncomfortable, that frog tries to get out of there. How do you know that? If you're a herpetologist and you keep reptiles and amphibians in a terrarium, what is the first thing they teach you to do? A warm side and a cool side of the vivarium. So the animal can thermoregulate. So you want me to believe that an animal that thermoregulates is going to sit in water while it slowly heats up and die peacefully, not try to get out? Bullshit. But if you are having a hard time with that right now because you've never heard me talk about it or somebody else talk about it before, and there's any part of you that wants to cling to that analogy because you've heard it so many times, or if you're a public speaker like I was and you said it, I don't know how many times I talked about the boiling frog analogy pre-survival podcast even. And when I realized that it was bullshit, as a person that's kept reptiles and amphibians in captivity my whole damn life, I went, you're so stupid. You're so stupid, Jack. You're so dumb. You knew everything you needed to know to know that was bullshit, but because everybody always said it, you repeated it, and the more you repeated it, the more it became true. If you're going to be a lifelong learner, you can never entrench yourself into the point where you believe that you know everything about anything. There are a few niches in this world that I would you know, I don't like saying it because it sounds egotistical, but if I'm being honest, I would classify myself as an expert. There are a few. I talk about a lot of things I don't consider. I just am informed, but not an expert. There's a few that I'm an expert. I still don't know shit about those things. 
the people that know the most about soil biology probably know 1% of what there is to eventually know. People that will make a person like me who's informed about it feel like an idiot. We had one here for a while, Stephen from, from uh, Stephen Reisner from Potent Ponics. I listen to him talk and I feel like an imbecile of what I don't know. And he probably knows 1% of what there is to learn. And we will never advance until we accept the fact that we have to be wrong to learn. Whatever we thought turns out to not be true. That's, that's the definition of learning. And the reason I'm harping on it here at the very end today is it is the problem, the root problem of everything in society today controlled by organizations and entities. There are people that are either financially vested in not changing or reputationally vested in not changing or both. This is the halt of actual progress for humanity, the earth, biology, agriculture, everything. Medicine, every place we have education, food, medicine, housing, every place that human beings struggle with our place in the world, with our place in the ecosystem, with our place in the freaking universe, every place we struggle. The primary roadblock is not intellect and the ability to acquire knowledge. We have that more than any other life form we're aware of. I said aware of. I'm not saying there's no life forms beyond this planet. But on this planet, there is no life form that can think the way we do, that can articulate the way that we do, that can learn the way that we learn, that can recall the way that we can re- that can do what we can do. We are fundamentally unlimited as beings that can acquire Knowledge because we can do something that even the most intelligent beings can't do. We can accumulate and pass knowledge to the next generation. A pack of dolphins may come up with a unique way to catch fish, and their offspring may learn it, and that pod may always have it. And if you've ever seen It's Pretty Cool, the one way that this one pod of dolphins, it's the only pod that does it. But humanity, we can learn something in Florida, and it can be distributed around the planet in minutes, but we don't do it. And we don't do it because we are so vested into where we are. But we shouldn't be. When you have a country like the United States blessed with some of the most fertile cropland on the planet, exporting more topsoil than steel, we shouldn't be. When you have places with abundant rainfall that need to circle irrigate, we shouldn't be. When you have people dying of an illness that can be treated with a supplement, we shouldn't be. When people are paying $6,000 a year for health insurance they don't even use that covers nothing, we shouldn't be vested in where we are. Remain open to being wrong. Least you fail to learn. With that, I'll catch you next week with a new episode. Tomorrow, next day, rewinds, Friday flashback. Take care, guys. Are they gonna bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way. A dollar down, a dollar a month, and you never have to pay. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you. A better way. 
revolution